Welcome back to another episode of the Rage Podcast. As always, we're happy to have you here and thankful that you're tuning in with us. Today's episode is a bit of a special one, as we're not only going to be highlighting organizations that are doing great work here in Colorado, but we'll also be diving into some topics around immigration. And here with me sharing this space is Dr. Elizabeth Escobedo. So before I get ahead of myself, first, I just want to thank you for coming on the show, sharing this space with me. I'm excited for our discussion. I'm excited to finally meet you. So I want to go ahead and kind of hand over the proverbial mic and ask if you would be willing if you could introduce yourself to our listeners. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. My name is Liz Escobedo, and I am an associate professor of history at the University of Denver. And my research specialty looks at women and war, and in particular, women of color and war. And my first book focused on Mexican-American women on the World War II home front. And this was very much a family history for me. My father's side of the family is Mexican-American. And I grew up hearing stories at the dinner table of the ways in which World War II tremendously impacted the Escobedo family, from my uncles all going off to serve overseas in the Pacific theater, to my aunts coming of age at a time when their brothers were away. And they had grown up in a very patriarchal household um, where my, my, my grandfather, who I never met, my father's father, um, had actually passed away when my father was quite young. And so my uncles really took over sort of the, the running of the household. And um, my grandmother very much looked to them to make sure that women in the family um, always had a chaperone on their arms, that Everybody knew where they were at a certain time because the idea was if women were behaving, quote unquote, improperly at the time, that it would reflect poorly on the family more broadly. And so up until World War II, my aunts had lived very circumscribed lives and they had a number of opportunities open up for them, both in employment and social opportunities once their brothers were, were overseas. And of course they were worried about them and wanted them to come home safely, but it, it, it represented a time of, of tremendous opportunity. In addition to limitations, because of course Mexican-Americans experienced tremendous discrimination during the World War II era. And my aunts chose to wear zoot suits, which was very controversial at the time. Um, and so their lives were not without tension and with not without some significant societal repercussions due to their choices um, that they made in their personal lives. But ultimately, World War II was really a defining moment. And so I've, I've taken that story and really ran with it and interviewed um, a number of women that came of age as Mexican-American women in World War II Los Angeles. And that became really the, the cornerstone of, of my research in my first book. And I'm now working on a book about Mexican-American women and Puerto Rican women in the World War II military. So that's where I come to my, my study of race. I teach classes on 20th century US history, also Chicanx history, women of color in the 20th century United States and race in the 20th century United States. 
And um, for the purposes of our conversation today, I, I teach a class on 20th century US immigration. And I've taught the class several times, but it was in 2016 that I decided that I'd really like to add a service learning component to the class. And it's always been important to me to include voices of marginalized communities in the United States. And in doing so, I look to primary sources uh, that are created by these marginalized peoples themselves, right? And so looking at newspapers or songs or photographs, oral histories, all of these play a role in any class I teach. Uh, and so in the immigration history course, uh, we delved very deeply into immigrant first person narratives and other sources coming from immigrant communities. But what was lacking was sort of that, that through line to the present day. And I really wanted to ensure that when students left my class, they had an understanding of what immigrant populations today are experiencing. And unfortunately, we know that for many immigrant populations, and particularly those who are undocumented and, and peoples of color, that experience um, is informed by family separation, by detention, and be, by deportation. And so that's really become a, a cornerstone of my 20th century US immigration history class, where I have students learn about the history of immigrants in the 20th century US in class, and then volunteer with the nonprofit organization Casa de Paz outside of class. When you were talking, I was just thinking about so many different things. The first was I wanted to know a bit more about your book and the writing process of that and how your family influenced that, how your experiences as a child influenced that and the things that you saw. And then also when we moved into Casa de Paz, I was thinking about the importance of learning both inside and outside of the classroom and that how a lot of times when we're in education rooms, a lot of times when we're getting this education, it's all on paper. And when things are all on paper, you don't get to see who is affected by this. You don't get to see the people who are doing the work to fight the problem that you're discussing, to fight the problem that you're learning more about. So those are kind of two, those are two separate completely ideas. But <laughs> when you were talking, those are the first two things I was like really wanting to learn more about. Would you be willing to answer more about your writing process for your book from coveralls to zoot suits? Absolutely, absolutely. Thank you for asking. Writing from coveralls to zoot suits was a, a really difficult process. I'm not one who uh, writing comes easily to. It's something that I procrastinate and <laughs> I struggle with. And it took me a really long while to go from my dissertation to my book. That being said, it is absolutely one of the greatest joys of my career to have produced this piece of scholarship, not just because it's a story of my family, but because I was able to speak with a number of Mexican American women who came of age in World War II Los Angeles and to amplify those voices that historically have been so acutely underrepresented. Growing up, I always loved history. And I was one of those who 
majored in history in college, decided immediately I wanted to go to grad school and continue that trajectory. But I was driven by the fact that I come from a family where my, my mother is white and my father is Mexican American. And I was able to see my mother's side of the family in the history of the United States. It was there, it was present. But when I look to that side of my family that is Mexican American in background, those stories went completely overlooked. I was hearing them at the dinner table and at family gatherings, and I was so lucky to be a part of that knowledge, but I wanted that knowledge to be seen and understood by others because it produces a more accurate vision of the United States when you look at these traditionally underrepresented voices. When I first embarked on this process, I started reaching out to um, a number of, of friends of my TS, and then that snowballed into friends of friends wanting to talk to me about their experiences. I went to senior centers in predominantly Mexican-American neighborhoods and asked if anyone would like to speak to me if they met the criteria of coming of age in LA during the Second World War. And so often when I would call up women and, and get a hold of them on the phone for the first time and introduce myself, and they'd say immediately, oh, I, you know, I don't, I don't have anything to say. My life wasn't that important. I didn't do that much. And I would start asking questions and just sort of teasing out, um, you know, how, how they would talk about their life story and understand their life story. And time and again, these, these women would open up and share their life histories with me. And by the end of the phone conversation or by the end of the interview, it was clear that there was this recognition of, I really did make a difference. And my story is deserving of being told in a larger narrative of US history. And so that was tremendously gratifying to be a part of amplifying those voices. And for women from a population that traditionally is considered other or outsiders or newcomers to see that they played key roles in these moments of national formation in the United States. And that recognition to me is, is what has really driven my research career and why I continue to want to write and talk with members of the Mexican-American community and the Puerto Rican community and to really ensure that these voices are not forgotten. There was something that you said when you were talking that I wrote down and you said that providing these stories creates a more accurate vision of the United States. And so in thinking about that and in thinking about history, I also thought about how a lot of times these histories aren't being taught. And like you said before, we learn so much about maybe the white side of history, but not so much about the histories of people of color within the education system. And so a lot of that educating, a lot of that history comes from our family or comes from our community. It isn't necessarily as valued by the educational system as stories involving white communities, white people. And then 
another thing that you had said too about when you were speaking with one of the women for your book is you said that by the end of the conversation, they said my, or they realized that their story is also deserving of being told. And I just thought that that was so powerful, that phrase, and that in this world that we live in, in a white supremacist and a white-centered world, our stories are often devalued. We're devalued. Yes. And it's one of the things that I really try to drive home with my students in any course that I teach, that your families and your communities share knowledge that is critical to our nation's history. And whether or not the academy or our educational system value those stories, um, they are there and they are deserving of being told. And it is worth taking the time to learn those histories from everyday people in your lives, right? History doesn't just have to be about the, the great men and great women, right? It's those who are making choices in their everyday lives that have reverberations for years and years to come. I think about um, one of the, the vignettes that I tell in my book is about, again, my, my BS. Um, again, we grew up in a, or they grew up in a very traditional Mexican-American household. But during World War II, their social worlds really expanded. Both of them met black men that they fell in love with and decided that they wanted to marry. But in California at the time, uh, whites could not marry blacks, right? Due to miscegenation laws. And as, as surprising as it may seem, Mexican-Americans were considered white by law, legally. And so they were unable to legally marry um, their loved ones in their life. And so um, they both ended up eloping and going to a small town in Arizona where they heard through their networks that you could actually get a license. And so they sort of got over that hurdle, but then they had the hurdle of, of telling my grandmother, right? And Unfortunately, there was a lot of anti-Black sentiment in my family during the 1940s and 1950s. And it wasn't until my aunts had babies um, that my, my grandmother came around and wanted to be, wanted to be a part of, of you know, her, her grandson's lives. And that's a, a really ugly part of our family history that I am not proud of. Um, but I think, again, it, it is a testament to the fact that my aunts went against familial restrictions, societal restrictions, to ensure that they were able to live the lives they wanted to live and to thrive. And that's pretty remarkable. And they were not alone. Um, actually, the case in California that ends miscegenation in that state, Perez v. Sharp was between a Mexican-American woman and an African-American man that met on the defense factory floor during World War II. So these personal circumstances and decisions matter. They overturn this miscegenation law, right? And so that has tremendous implications for all who are looking to 
to be a part of an interracial relationship and have it legally sanctified by, by the law. So I am always telling my students, make sure that you're talking to your loved ones. Make sure, especially if you are from an underrepresented community and fight for those stories to matter and to be told. 100%, and I think just that story is, is so powerful. And I think that it embodies a lot of what we've talked about already in terms of already having stories worth being told, already having making change or being able to make that change, whether we noticed that we were or not. And the legacies of that, that we leave to our children, that we leave to our children's children or et cetera, et cetera. And I just think that that story that you shared it's just an amazing, an amazing one. And I think it embodies that, that whole idea of we have stories worth being told. We are moving mountains, whether we realize that we're moving them or not. And I think that that is just incredible. So I'm kind of just, <laughs> I'm kind of just processing the story. I'm like, wow, like, yes. <laughs> it, is, it is. And it's very empowering, I think, for yeah. students. To recognize that because you know in the in the larger world um, and larger public that's not what we're told mm -hmm. you know and and time and again particularly individuals from communities or color are given the messaging that their community doesn't matter and that doesn't have a, a you know a narrative or a fit in the United States and that's simply not true yeah. and one of the things that I talk about in my book as well is this idea of thinking about civil rights in the everyday. So in any class that I teach, I talk about civil rights activism from the leadership to grassroots organizers who are on the ground every day. But again, it's also important to have a broader umbrella understanding of what civil rights actually entails. And I believe it's those personal decisions and, and actions that also really matter in this arc towards social justice. I have one last question for you pertaining to your book that I was also thinking about as you were sharing. Um, one of your expertises is also on women and gender, and then also the history of race and ethnicity in America. So I wanted to know how both of those ideas impacted your book or if anything was revealed to you about both of those topics, women and gender or race and ethnicity within your book? That is a fantastic question. And the answer is yes. I mean, there are so many interesting intersections. One of the, the concepts that I really play with in the book is the fact that Mexican-Americans, particularly in this moment of World War II, but I would argue in other historical moments as well, are able to traverse the world as a quote unquote racially in between people. So the fact of the matter is that after the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, Mexicans living in the United States are given US citizenship. And that is something that was not given to peoples of color since 1790 naturalization law. And so this was a really unique moment for Mexican-Americans to legally claim whiteness through citizenship. And whiteness, as we know, in our society matters and it comes with power and privilege. 
That being said, in the everyday circumstances of Mexican-Americans lives, we know that this is a community that suffers tremendous racial discrimination and violence and inability to access education and well-paying jobs. And so there's a real conundrum that Mexican American and contradiction that Mexican Americans are constantly facing that on some level they are able to garner more privilege and power because of their claims to whiteness and citizenship. And of course, this being for communities that are um, born in the United States or were able to achieve citizenship after the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo in ways that other communities and especially African-American communities cannot. And so we see during World War II, for instance, in the defense factory workplace, I look at a number of um, airline, uh, I'm sorry, aircraft at the time, defense aircraft, big companies like Douglas and Lockheed that start hiring more and more women of color, but there is not as much resistance to Mexican-American women on the shop floor as there is to the integration of black women on the, the shop floor. And I think that's really telling, right, um, about the nature of how race is operating on the World War II home front, and that there's some malleability there for Mexican-Americans to play with in ways that you know, the dark, the stark color line for African-Americans is, is just so apparent. And it's so much harder for those types of racial discrimination and, and prejudices to be overcome for the African-American community during World War II. The other thing that I notice is that a lot of Mexican-American women were able to garner positive attention in the press at a time when many Mexican-American young men, youth, were reviled for being quote-unquote gang members or criminals, right? There was this idea that if you were Mexican, you were inherently criminal and therefore you should be treated as such by the police, by the press. And this is not to say that Mexican-Americans did not face this type of discrimination and racial profiling. We see in particular those Mexican-American women that chose to wear zoot suits, which again was a very controversial clothing style on the World War II home front. And again, was seen as, as signaling criminality. Um, these young women had a really hard time because their reputations were dragged through the mud, they were considered sexually promiscuous. But for those Mexican-American women who perhaps didn't adopt that more controversial style or who did so in leisure venues on the weekends, but during the week were working in their defense jobs, they were actually able to get some social capital and get well-paying jobs for the first time in their lives. Defense factory newspapers are highlighting their work, um, you know, that these are Americans all, these are young women who are patriotic and doing their duty to support servicemen abroad. And um, that's a big sea change. If you look at the 1930s, just a decade earlier, Mexican Americans were being 
deported and repatriated in mass numbers from the United States because they were seen as, again, outsiders who were not deserving of any sort of support during the Great Depression, that they were taking jobs away from more quote unquote deserving whites. So to see this type of positive press coverage happening during World War II is no small thing. But I do think that we see this happening more with young women who are adopting lifestyles, making choices that are seen as more patriotic than those who are playing with a zoot identity or hanging out with zoot suitors, quote unquote, in their free time. So again, there's this constant flux and continuum about how Mexican Americans are going to be perceived in that wartime environment, given a number of factors, where they're living, where they're working, what they're wearing. Um, and this is both because they are a community of color and, and therefore are constantly having to prove themselves as Americans, right? Um, but they are also facing a big backlash during the World War II era because they are people of color and therefore um, seen as others and outsiders and newcomers. So the book really tries to explore these contradictions and the wartime environment as both a time of opportunity and a time of limitation. Thank you for sharing with that. I think those are really important um, aspects of your book that I just wanted to highlight. And so thank you for sharing about both of those. Absolutely. You mentioned a lot of concepts such as identity, such as labeling um, and othering that I think tie really well into conversations around Casa de Paz and other conversations around immigration. So before I get ahead of myself though, I wanted to go ahead and give you the opportunity to kind of introduce what Casa de Paz is and also the work that they do, if you'd be willing. Absolutely, absolutely. Casa de Paz is a nonprofit community organization that supports immigrants that have recently been detained in the Geo Aurora Detention Center. And again, this is a for-profit prison and immigrants who are released for the prison are often done so with only the clothes on their back. These clothes are often inappropriate. They might have been picked up in the summer months and now it's snowing and freezing outside. Um, so they don't have proper attire, they don't have any money, they don't have access to a cell phone, um, and they are literally dropped off in the streets of Aurora, left to just figure it out. And when the founder and executive director of Casa de Paz learned about this, she decided that she wanted to create an organization that would welcome immigrants who are just coming out of detention without resources once they are released and provide them with a healthy meal, warm conversation, a welcoming environment, proper clothing, 
access to a cell phone or a computer so that immigrants can contact their family members, let them know that they've been released, and finally to plan a path for them to reunite with their families that they've been away from for so long. So it is a fantastic organization. It's a 100% volunteer run. And I believe the CASA has supported three to 4,000 immigrants from almost 100 different countries um, since their opening. And so when I read about Sarah Jackson and what she was offering for immigrant populations, I immediately wanted to be a part of it in some way, shape or form. And of course, in working on the syllabus and teaching my immigration history course, I had learned more and more about the ways in which immigrants have been criminalized in our national conversation and also in their their treatment when they are simply waiting to have a hearing um, to resolve their status in the United States. And so I, I called up Sarah Jackson and um, if you know anything about her, she is an extraordinarily welcoming and warm human being and she immediately wanted to see how we could partner up and to get students in my immigration history course to volunteer at CASA. So I did this in 2016 and it was a tremendous success. Students were incredibly grateful for an opportunity to be able to take what they were learning in class and apply it to real world solutions and support. So students would go, and of course this is before times pre-COVID, would go to the detention center and meet with migrants who are in detention uh, for many of these migrants, this is their only opportunity to be released from their cell for a little bit, is if they have a visitor. And so if you don't have family in the area or with the ability to come and see you within the detention center, you're not getting out of your cell or your pod. And so students met with migrants there at the GEO facility, or they would serve as hosts at the CASA. And this would entail picking up migrants that had recently been released, bringing them to the CASA, which is just your average home in an average neighborhood near DIA. And again, making a meal together, ensuring that travel arrangements are made, ensuring that the immigrant is able to connect with their family or friends and let them know that they're free and to help them on their way to reunite. And I think for a lot of students, this was really eye-opening work. Many don't even know that this geo facility exists in DU's backyard, right? And it has for quite some time. And that's purposeful. These for-profit immigrant prisons don't want to be on the radar of the larger public because there's a lot of human rights abuses that are taking place within those walls. When I volunteered at CASA, um, I met a young man who was undocumented. He had been in the United States since he was two when his family crossed the border. And he grew up in every way, shape and form an American. That's all he ever knew. He hadn't visited Mexico. He didn't know family members in Mexico. 
And so for him, this was his home. But on a fateful night um, on the streets in Utah, I'm forgetting the city, he was picked up by immigration authorities and he was unable to prove that he was a citizen. He was taken in, his cell phone was taken away from him and he ended up being put in detention but was unable to tell any of his family members where he was or what had happened to him. He was then transferred from Utah to Colorado to the detention center in Aurora. And here it wasn't until he was able to tell a pastor that he had met at the detention center um, his, his plight, what had happened to him, and if he could please post on his Facebook wall where he was so that his family would know. And this was months into his detention. And so it's stories like these that it's unimaginable how we are treating fellow human beings in this country, but it is happening every day. And so I think for students, it is a, a way to understand the immigration system and to understand that we're not just talking about numbers here, we are talking about human beings. We are talking about real life people and that there are consequences for the way in which we treat our fellow human beings. Uh, while he was in detention, he was paid a dollar a day to work in the kitchen. And he did this because that way he could actually get the best food. Um, otherwise, the, the food is typically rotten, um, has bugs or worms in it. Um, and this was sort of his, his survival technique. Uh, medical care is, is awful within these walls, if non-existent, and of course COVID has only made conditions worse. And so students are, I think, really taken aback when they recognize the conditions that immigrants are, are, are faced with and living with. But it's also a moment for human connection and empathy, because you have students who think, well, you know, and especially at a predominantly white institution like DU, you know, what do I have in common with, with someone who's undocumented and within a prison? Um, and they quickly learn, you know, they have age, they have, you know, perhaps the same sports teams that they like, same music. And so there's this ability, again, to really challenge those narratives of immigrants as, as others. Um, you know, this us versus them narrative that so often is, is how we talk about immigration in this country. And to see, no, this is just a fellow human being just like me. And based on life circumstances and chance, I'm not in that prison, but they are. And so it's a very eye-opening moment, not to mention you're providing support to individuals who are most vulnerable in our society. And you know, Sarah is always talking about stories of, of migrants that, that stayed at CASA and received the support of volunteers, writing letters or providing phone calls or gifts, so thankful that they were finally able to get a welcome and a friendly face in the United States and to see that there are people outside the walls of the detention center who are there for them and fighting for their, 
their release and their humane treatment. When you were talking, I was also thinking about when I was learning more about Casa de Paz. And one of the exciting things about it is it's at no expense as well. So they're a nonprofit, they're, as you said, volunteer run. And so they're doing this amazing work and not charging for it, which is so important. And then also they provide these amazing resources. And something that you had said is when immigrants get released from the detention center, they might not have the resources to go anywhere. They might not have the clothes to suit the weather. And one of the things that the organization does is called Casa on Wheels, where they pick up these individuals from the detention center and then take them to Casa de Paz. And I also wanted to highlight what you had said before about the origins of the organization, that it started as just a one single room and then it expanded to helping more than 3000 people. I think just right there highlights the amazing work, the necessity for this work. Also, when you were talking, I was thinking about the importance of language and how language can be used as a humanizing tool, but then also as a dehumanizing tool and also as a fear inducing tool. And so I guess I would like to learn more from you specifically about, and this can relate to Casa de Paz or your own work, how is language important or why is language so important within the conversation around immigration? I think language is, is so, so critical because that's at the forefront of our immigrant conversation is how people um, within the United States are talking about immigrants and, and thinking about their experiences. And if you are able to dehumanize a population, it makes it acceptable to have these sorts of conditions within immigrant detention prisons exist because these are not human beings that we're talking about. These are numbers. These are people who are, are here, quote unquote, illegally. Um, and when you talk about an individual as a quote, alien, when you talk about an individual as a quote, illegal, end quote, those are incredibly derisive terms because you are essentially taking away the humanity of these individuals who are simply trying to find a better life for themselves and their family. And I would ask anyone if they were experiencing the conditions of violence and crime and threats and lack of opportunity or employment and unable to put food on the table for their children, who wouldn't make that decision to cross a border? I also think it's so important to understand that these decisions are not made lightly, right? You know, again, this idea of, of thinking about empathy, how difficult it is to leave everything that you know in the world, people that you love, um, a land that you have been a part of and your ancestors have been a part of for centuries. But if you're desperate enough, you do it. And I, for me, so much of this conversation came to a head when I became a mother myself. I'm the mom of a six-year-old and a 12-year-old. And just as I was starting to create this CASA class, I was reading a book called uh, Detained and Deported by Margaret Reagan. And she 
talks about detention and deportation in, in very humanizing ways in which she follows a family and tells their story with these draconian procedures. And one story that I will never forget was a woman who was driving her children to school and she was pulled over for a traffic violation. It might've been a broken taillight, um, you know, or going under the speed limit in a, in a school zone. My, my mind is failing me right now for the exact details, but she's pulled over and in a heartbeat, she is taken away by ICE and her kids have to find family members or are put into a foster system. And then once she goes into immigration detention, she has no way of knowing when a court hearing is so that she can ensure that her children don't get taken away from her while she is in detention. And then she is deemed an unfit mother because she doesn't show up for that hearing. And that to me, I mean, it's like having your heart ripped out of your chest to think about what these families are having to go through. And this is not a new phenomenon. This has been happening in the United States for decades. And, you know, we, we saw some attention to this issue with family separation at the border under the Trump administration. But when you look back at immigration detention and deportation more broadly, we've been separating families for decades. And so to get back, my long-winded point, to get back to your original question, that language matters because if you are dehumanizing individuals, it allows for this type of lack of humanitarian concern for individuals to take place. And that is morally wrong. We need to think about immigration as a moral issue, as a humanitarian issue, and not just numbers um, you know, of, of hordes, quote unquote, coming across the border. And this is one of the main missions of Sarah and Casa is that she get um, as many people as possible to sit down and talk with an immigrant and to hear their story and step in their shoes and show compassion and empathy for others. And she challenges you to do so. And once you do, more than likely, you are gonna think differently about how the debate over immigration takes place in this country. And that's why this work I think is so critical for DU students to engage in. And we've been fortunate enough now that um, it is no longer just my class that is taught with a CASA component. We now have faculty throughout the College of Arts, Humanities and Social Sciences that work with CASA teaching courses on immigration in the disciplines of anthropology and Spanish and sociology. And students are then able to continue their work with CASA by working on different classes that focus on immigration. And I think that's a really important experience given all of the dehumanizing language and negative stereotypes that we foster in this country on a daily basis about immigrant populations. It's really hard to maintain that those types of beliefs when you are in the same room with someone and hearing their life story. 
first, I just want to thank you for talking with me today. I love talking with you. I love getting to know you. Likewise, Karis. It's so nice. I mean, you know, I there is so much respect for you on the DU campus. And I know, you know, you've done so much work for the Remember X and, you know, all your work for, for students of color on our campus. So this is a real honor for me, too. Thank you. Thank you. I'm so glad I got to share this space with you and yeah. to talk about these things because they're really important, really important. I do have one last question for you, and this is kind of a broad question, so you can take it okay. in whatever way you would like, but what most would you like, what most or what things would you like to leave our listeners with today? Like if they don't get anything else from this podcast, what are the things that you most want to highlight from our discussion? That's a great question. And I think what I would most like people to take away from this discussion is that it's important to think critically about popular misconceptions and stereotypes about immigrants. And instead to look at that human side of immigrant policy discussions and debates and also to think critically of the world around you. And again, not to just take at face value that more immigrants of color are behind bars right now that are, are, are in a prison atmosphere by very nature of having an immigration violation, right? These are not criminal offenses and yet still they remain in prison and behind bars. And to think carefully about how race operates. And the fact of the matter is, is that we have created this system and we can undo it. It just takes empathy and compassion and more individuals to recognize just how inhumane our current policies of deportation and detention are and that we don't have to be that country that separates family. We can choose to be a, a different and better type of nation. And it starts with one human connection at a time. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Rage Podcast. We're happy that you're tuning in with us and spending your time with us. The Rage Podcast is a product of the Interdisciplinary Research Institute for the Study of Inequality, or IRISE. To find out more about us and the work that we do, please visit irise.du.edu. To ensure that we can continue to bring you quality content, please make sure to subscribe or follow, like, and share on the platform that you're listening to us on. The music for this particular podcast episode is called Serenity, and it's by producer Riddiman. Once again, thank you for listening to this episode. We'll have more coming at you, and we'll see you soon.